0: Hey Conjurers, I'm Steph and I'm Sham. We talk a lot on this podcast about being vigilant. We encourage you to be aware of your surroundings and trust your gut. I stand by that advice, but how are we supposed to know who to watch out for? How do we stay vigilant of the monsters when they are so often disguised as heroes? I want you to answer this question honestly, really think about it for a minute. Imagine you're lying awake in bed scrolling through Instagram. It's the middle of the night and suddenly you hear a high-pitched, blood-curdling, desperate scream from outside. You run to the window or whatever, but you don't hear or see anything else. What would you do? Would you call the police? Would you go out or send your husband out to investigate or would you go back to bed?
1: Okay, first off, I'm not sending my husband out there to investigate anything in the middle of the day, let alone at nighttime. The first thing I'd honestly do is get my entire family into me and my husband's bedroom to make sure we're safe because I don't know who's out there and I don't know where they're heading and I do not know their motives. But while getting my family together, I'll call the police to investigate because that's their job and they need to do it once in a while.
0: (laughs) Okay, my husband and I would absolutely step outside and see if we could figure out what's going on. While calling the
1: police. And see, that doesn't surprise <laughs> me.
0: <laughs> this hypothetical scenario is exactly what happened in Gulfport, Florida on May 23rd, 1984. At around 1.15 a.m., an entire neighborhood heard a chilling scream. But when they looked outside and listened for where it was coming from, they saw and heard nothing at all. Dozens of people heard the scream that night, but not a single person called 911. Each person went back to bed and chose to mind their own business, reassuring themselves with an array of possible innocent explanations of what it could have been. What no one realized was if even one person had called the police, it's possible a woman's life could have been saved. It would be 30 hours later when everyone that heard that scream would finally found out what they had actually witnessed. Thursday morning, May 24th, David Mackey called his own house phone repeatedly, his panic growing with each unanswered ring. He was on a business trip in Rhode Island, and he hadn't heard from his girlfriend Karen Gregory since Tuesday night. He wasn't worried at first, she was probably just busy, but now he had a gut feeling something was wrong. Between calls to his house, he called her friends, her family, even her boss. No one had seen Karen since Tuesday night. He even tried police and hospitals, but no one knew anything about Karen Gregory or even just the 36-year-old white female Jane Doe. At around 8.30 a.m., he gave in to his panic and called one of his neighbors, Amy Bressler, and asked her to look out her window to see if Karen's car was in the driveway. She said yes, both cars were in the driveway. He explained why he was worried and asked her to walk over and check on Karen for
1: him. Okay, sorry, I know this is going to make me sound like a trash neighbor, but I'm not walking over to a house of anyone missing that long. I don't know what I'd be walking into, and I don't know if a dangerous person can still be there. Sorry, I write true crime, so the first thing that would come to mind is she's either dead or she's being held hostage. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, you know what? You have a point. I would still totally check on a neighbor if I knew them well enough for them to have my number and call me for help.
1: You would check on me, though, right, if I was your neighbor? Yes, that's for sure. I would check on you, but (laughs) if you ever become my neighbor and I don't know you, I'm not a reliable person. Sorry.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Amy agreed to check on Karen. She told David she would call him back, but he insisted on waiting on the line. So she set the phone down and walked outside. David's house had an enclosed porch with an outer door, which Amy found locked. She was immediately concerned when she saw a section of glass in the door was shattered. The shards of broken glass were leading all the way up the walk to the curb. When no one answered her knocks, she walked around to the back of the house and found an open bedroom window. The curtains were drawn so she couldn't see in, but the screen on the window was cut so she carefully reached in and moved the curtain aside, calling for Karen the whole time. She didn't want to startle Karen if she was sleeping, but something fell off. As soon as she moved the curtain aside, she saw blood everywhere and the lower half of a woman's body lying in the hall outside the bedroom. She screamed for Karen, but the body didn't move. Amy ran back to her house and hysterically yelled into the phone that something terrible had happened and she needed to call the police. She hung up on David and called 911. A rookie police officer arrived within minutes. The police station was just down the road Paramedics pulled up right after her. The officer tried the door to the porch, but it was locked, and she noticed just as Amy had the shattered glass up the walk. She walked around to the back of the house, and seeing the body through the bedroom window, she removed the screen and climbed through the window. Carefully she walked through the crime scene to unlock the front door for the paramedics and called for backup. Back inside the bedroom, she noticed a fan running on the floor and a disheveled bed with a bloodstain on the sheets. The woman's body was lying on her left side. She was nude from the waist down, with a white t-shirt pushed up to her breasts and a black teddy haphazardly bunched around her waist on top of the t-shirt. Blood was splattered on the walls, doors, even the ceiling, and pooled on the carpet.
1: Well, she was definitely murdered.
0: (laughs) You think? (laughs) I do want to clarify, while I would check on my neighbor, I wouldn't do what Karen's neighbor did. If I saw that broken glass, I would be out of there calling 911. No way I'm going around to the back to peek through the windows. (laughs) Well, you know
1: what I'd be doing because I wouldn't be over there in the first place. (laughs) Um, But what did the investigators come up with is what I'm curious about.
0: Well, okay. Gulfport was a small town with only approximately 12,000 people. The police department was small and most had only investigated maybe one or two murders in their entire careers. For some, this was their first. The second the Gulfport medical examiner saw the scene, she knew they weren't prepared for this. She couldn't determine a cause of death there at the scene because so much blood had dried on the body she couldn't see the extent of the wounds. But clearly the woman had been stabbed many times. The ME pushed the lead detective to call in the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, here on out called the FDLE, for state level resources and investigation. He reluctantly agreed and called in FDLE crime scene analysts to gather evidence. There were several handprints in dried blood on Karen's lower back and legs from where the killer had rolled her over. There were bloody footprints on the carpet and one on the tile in the bathroom that indicated the killer was barefoot. There were fingerprints on the windowsill in the bedroom as well, suggesting the killer may have left through that window. On the door to the porch, the section of broken glass had blood and some of Karen's hair stuck to the glass, as well as a smear of blood on the handle. The crime scene just wasn't making sense. The trail of blood throughout the house told a story of an epic struggle. The cuts and bruises on Karen's hands showed she put up one hell of a fight. But nothing in the house was out of place. No furniture was knocked over, even though the lights had all been turned off when police arrived. There was no sign of forced entry, and the window they believed could have been the entry and exit point still had the screen on it, and the killer closed the curtains behind them when they left? A bloodstained Hawaiian shirt had been found on the bed in the back bedroom, and no one knew where it had come from. It was a woman's shirt and appeared to be handmade. It had no labels. It was found in a different bedroom than where Karen kept her clothes. It wasn't Karen's style, and no one had seen her wear it. Later, David told police the only things missing was a glass vase that he couldn't be sure hadn't been broken at another time, and a white piece of lingerie Karen had bought for herself for her 36th birthday. They also learned while interviewing neighbors that the door to the porch had been wide open on Wednesday. Multiple people had noticed it, but it was closed and locked on Thursday when Amy found Karen and when police arrived. It looked like someone had returned to the crime scene sometime Wednesday night to straighten up and lock the doors. Once the crime scene analysts finished their once-over, Karen's friend Anita, who was waiting outside, asked who would be cleaning the house. The analyst shrugged and replied, the owner of the house, I guess. David was trying to get on a flight at that very moment, and Anita didn't want him coming home to that. She and a friend went and got cleaning supplies and with permission from the inexperienced detective got to work cleaning. While they worked, groups of police officers not officially on the case walked through the house laughing and cruelly speculating about what might have happened while rifling through Karen's things. Anita and her friend did their best to clean up through the emotional trauma, but it barely made a dent before David arrived. He and Anita cried together while they walked through his house, seeing the evidence of what had been done to the love of his life for the first time. It had once felt like a home where he and Karen were going to build their life together, but now it just felt like a structure housing his stuff. He couldn't stay there. He packed a few things and moved in with his and Karen's friend, Naverne and her boyfriend.
1: Excuse me, they were laughing at a crime scene where a woman just died. And I may not be a crime scene expert, but don't they have professionals who come and clean up crime scenes? Them allowing friends to do it can't be legal. That's just insane to me.
0: Actually, I looked into that. Law enforcement won't do anything to clean a crime scene. There are professional services you can hire through your homeowner's insurance, but that is completely on the owner of the house. If you can't afford the professionals, I guess you would have to clean it yourself.
1: That is sick and twisted. Right? I know David and Karen's loved ones wanted answers, though.
0: Absolutely. Police decided to start with putting together how Karen spent her last day alive, Tuesday, May 22nd. She went to work at her new job as a graphic designer. Then after work, stopped by her old apartment to pick up the last load of boxes to move into her boyfriend David's house. She took the boxes home, did a little cleaning, then at around 8 p.m. went over to her friend Naverne Covington's house for dinner. Karen was planning to take care of Navern's cats and houseplants while she was out of town for the next week. Karen told her friend how excited she was for her new job and to move in with David. Things were finally going right in her life. She confessed she would miss her beachfront apartment and her roommate Anita, but she was excited to settle in a nice little town like Gulfport. The friends sat around drinking wine and chatting until about 11.45 p.m. when Karen said she needed to get home, shower, and go to bed.
1: It doesn't sound like anything was really off that night, and she sounded like she knew she was going home to her safe space that she shared with the love of her life. She
0: was just going about her day, no red flags at all.
1: Right, but what's Karen's background?
0: Well, Karen was born on March 29, 1948, near Albany, New York. The name she was given was Karen Marshall. She was the oldest with two brothers and one sister. They all looked up to her, and she loved being in charge and bossing them around. From an early age, Karen was very athletic. She loved bike riding, swimming, music, and movies. She studied art, and at the insistence of her parents, she went to a Catholic women's college, but she chose one in Chicago in an effort to find some freedom on her own. While at college, Karen joined the hippie movement and was photographed protesting the Vietnam War, which pissed off her parents. Karen turned her back on her conservative Catholic parents' values altogether when she eloped with a man named Steve Cruz. After a few years, they grew apart and divorced, but stayed friends. She moved back home to New York, but changed her last name to Gregory, her mother's maiden name. For a few years, she taught art to kids, then worked with mental patients, but she wanted a change. She decided to move to Florida to be near her little sister. She met like-minded friends and loved spending her time on the beach. One night at a reggae concert, Karen met an incredibly handsome man named David Mackey. He was well-educated, had a good job helping veterans get counseling, carried himself with confidence, and best of all, they shared the same taste in music. After dating for over a year, Karen decided to move in with David. She already spent more time at his place than she did at her beachfront apartment anyway. He owned a modest one-story house with three bedrooms in a quiet neighborhood with almost no crime. Most of the neighbors were snowbirds, and their houses set empty for half the year. David had lived there for several years and felt comfortable there. He had never had any trouble with anyone. She thought she would be safe there. We don't know if Karen went straight home after leaving Naverne's that night or if she stopped along the way, but the crime scene suggests she was in bed by 1 a.m. when the attack started. Since there was no forced entry, police wondered if she had picked someone up or let someone in. But Karen's sister insisted she wouldn't have done that. Karen was as vigilant as they come. She would always lecture her sister about leaving her doors unlocked. She didn't even open the door before she knew who it was and what they wanted. Karen was almost paranoid about it, and had confided in her sister that she was nervous about staying at David's house alone while he was out of town.
1: Well, she's my type of girl because I won't answer the door unless I check the door cam first. I don't like unannounced visitors, and I would never invite a stranger into my home. If a family member says someone is not like that, then you believe them because they know them best.
0: Uh, Absolutely. I make sure my giant dogs are standing visible next to me if I answer the door to someone I don't know. She sounds like she knew what she was doing.
1: Yeah, see, my cats don't do that for me, but (laughs) (laughs) I get it. What went down during the rest of the investigation?
0: So the autopsy and the crime scene evidence paint a gruesome picture of what happened that night. Semen was found in her body, suggesting she had been raped during the attack. The trail of blood throughout the house shows Karen fought for her life and at one point broke away from her attacker and made it all the way to the front porch. As she tried to turn the handle to escape, her attacker slammed her head against the door with such force, glass flew all the way to the street. The intruder then dragged her back into the house and into the hallway where they stabbed Karen at least 30 times in the neck. Most likely, Karen was on the porch trying to escape when she let out the scream that all her neighbors ignored. Police interviewed neighbors within a two-block radius. They were shocked to learn just how many people had heard Karen scream while she was being murdered, but no one had called police. One man, Arthur, was up reading that night when he heard the short, high-pitched scream. He listened for 15 minutes at the window, but heard nothing else, so he went to bed. A neighbor named Martha heard the scream and the sound of a slamming door, but assumed it was just a couple having an argument. Glinda Harness lived across the street from David's house and she was woken up by the scream. She looked out her window and saw an older man standing in his doorway looking around. Glinda looked for her boyfriend, George, who had been working late in the garage, but the garage light was off and he wasn't home. She sat in the kitchen terrified, waiting for him to get home for what felt like forever, but she estimated it was more like 30 minutes. At one point, she even thought she saw a silhouette of a man in her backyard. Finally, her boyfriend came in and she ran to hug him. They talked about the scream, and George said he had looked around outside but didn't see anything. Then they went to bed.
1: Okay, so I understand not doing anything if you heard a quick scream. However, if I hear a door slam too and the thought of a domestic dispute crosses my mind, I'm going to call the police because those so often end up deadly, and they're not to be fucked with. Like, come on. It's like she normalized domestic violence and went to bed. Call the police every single time, even if you have to do it anonymously.
0: Right? I don't understand how that is a reason not to
1: call police. Yeah. He was looking around for a long time, though, if he was out there for 30 minutes, so he had to have seen more.
0: Detectives were eager to talk to Glinda's boyfriend, 22-year-old George Lewis, too, but he was at work. He was a firefighter, an EMT, and the unofficial captain of the Neighborhood Watch. They knew him very well. He was their friend. If anyone saw something suspicious, it would be George. They called him and asked him to come make a statement. The firehouse was next door to the police station, so he came right over. He was happy to help, and he walked them through the whole story. He said he was out in his garage working on his motorcycle when he heard a faint scream. He turned off his radio and the light in the garage to allow his eyes to adjust to the darkness. He walked out to his driveway and looked around. He said he didn't see or hear anything else, so he went to bed. Later, one of the investigators, Larry Tosi, whose girlfriend worked with Glenda, was hanging out with George, and they started talking about the case. George remembered he had seen something that night. He just hadn't thought that much of it at first. He said he saw a guy on a bike right down the street shortly after the scream. He said it might have been one of the two middle-aged white guys he saw riding bikes in the area earlier that day. He told Larry he hadn't seen anything else that night, but he did see some suspicious activity in the area earlier that might help the investigation. He told him about two black men who had been at David's property that morning doing yard work. He said one of the men regularly cut David's grass, and about a month ago, that man had a seizure while mowing and paramedics had been called. George, an EMT himself, had run over to help and helped move the man inside David's house to get him out of the sun. He suggested maybe the seizure had been a ruse to get inside the house and see the layout. He also told Larry about a man that came by David's and Karen's house on Wednesday that was acting strangely. He said the man drove up in a van Wednesday night and walked up on the porch and knocked on the front door. When no one answered, he walked down to the street, looked both ways like he was looking for someone, then walked back to the house and knocked again. He then went back to his van and sat there for a few minutes. He got out and left a note on the windshield of Karen's car and got in his van and drove away. Police had in fact already found the note on the windshield, and it read, and I quote, Karen and David, hello, stopped by about 7.15 or so, but saw no signs of life. Many things to do tonight, so probably won't be back, but I have something you wanted. We'll be home not too late. It was signed, Peter. And he had left his phone number george also implied larry should be looking into david as well telling him david often did some kind of martial arts and that the guy just made him uneasy
1: okay so i won't lie the no signs of life thing was super weird to say in general but why would he leave all of that evidence if he was the killer It doesn't make sense to me. I mean, yes, look into him, but he just sounds like a weird person. (laughs) And as far as the martial arts making someone feel uneasy, what the hell does that have to do with the way she was murdered? It's just martial arts. He wasn't training to be an assassin. (laughs) (laughs) Police looked into Peter extensively, and he was
0: definitely a weird guy, but he had an alibi and police were able to clear him. As for David and his martial arts, dude, he would like to practice Tai Chi for exercise and meditation, which is more like controlled dance than a fighting style. (laughs) That neighbor just didn't like David, if you ask me.
1: Yeah, so did anyone else have any real insight as to why this happened?
0: (laughs) While interviewing neighbors, detectives also learned about a prowler that had been seen recently in the neighborhood. Apparently, the neighborhood had a history of peeping incidents. They had been going on for some time prior to the murder. A young couple that lived next door to David had seen a man looking through one of their windows. So had an older woman about a block over. In the days following the murder, there had been a flurry of prowling calls from a house just around the corner from David's house. Two black women lived there alone. One was 32 years old, and the other was 19. I couldn't find their names, But other than David, these two women were the only other people of color in the area. At 3 a.m. on Thursday, May 24th, only a few hours before Karen's body was discovered, the 32-year-old woman called police when someone tried to break into her house by prying open a back window. Five days later, at 4 a.m., the 19-year-old woke up to a strange noise outside and saw the shadow of a man crouching near her window. She couldn't make out what he looked like, but watched him move around to the back of the house where the other bedrooms were located, then he disappeared. Two days later, just after 2 a.m., the 19-year-old heard another noise outside her window. She woke up her roommate, who looked out the window and saw a man running from their yard. They couldn't tell police anything about what the man looked like, other than he was white. Police searched the yard and ramped up patrols of the neighborhood and instructed people to leave their outside lights on all night. Larry began to wonder if Karen's murder could have been racially motivated. She was a white woman dating a black man in a conservative primarily white neighborhood where interracial relationships were considered scandalous. Then immediately after Karen's murder, the only two other black women in the neighborhood were targeted. It was starting to look like the killer was possibly trying to rid his neighborhood of what the killer considered undesirables.
1: Okay, that's a weird motive to come up with, but it is the 80s, so it could be true. I'm black myself, and I'm surrounded by white neighbors, and some of them won't even look at me. I guess it's definitely a theory to investigate.
0: I looked it up, and the entire town of Gulfport is like 89% white and heavily southern conservative, if you know what I mean. The detective probably suspected that based on experience of racial discrimination in the area in the past.
1: Yeah, it sounds like the neighborhood is being targeted. Therefore, the suspect has to be one of them.
0: Police had no shortage of suspects. They gathered prints and hair samples from more than 10 suspects, but no one came back a match. By July, Larry was feeling frustrated. They had cleared nearly all of their potential suspects, and he was realizing the FDLE crime scene team had done a shit job of collecting evidence. They saw some fingerprints on the bedroom window and figured that was plenty of evidence right there. The problem was, those fingerprints belonged to the rookie cop who climbed through the window to unlock the front door. David took the damaged door off the porch, cut the blood-soaked carpet up, and gathered any sharp objects in the house that could have been used as a murder weapon and delivered it all to Larry Tosi to put in evidence. Larry was embarrassed that the crime scene techs hadn't thought to gather any evidence at all other than photos and the video of the crime scene. They hadn't vacuumed for hair or fiber evidence or gathered any prints other than the useless ones on the window before letting Karen's friends in to clean. Larry reviewed the crime scene photos every day with a magnifying glass, but his superiors were pressuring him to move on to other cases. He refused to let it go. David was obsessed with catching Karen's killer and incessantly bothered the detectives about the progress of the case. David felt Larry was the only one passionate about the case and was frustrated at the lack of interest from literally everyone else involved. Larry started to get suspicious of David and how involved in the investigation he was. He was also bothered by the fact that David's umbrella was found in the bedroom. Why would David have forgotten his umbrella when he had gone to all that trouble to check the weather and knew it was going to rain? The only explanation in Larry's mind was that David had brought the umbrella back to Gulfport with him the night of the murder and left it behind after killing Karen. Larry flew up to Rhode Island to interview the hotel staff and colleagues David had been with on the night of the murder. The person David had dinner with Tuesday night left him about 8.45 p.m. The next person to spend time with David saw him at 8.30 the next morning. When Larry checked the flight logs, there was a flight that would have allowed David to fly home late that night and arrive back in Rhode Island early the next morning. It would have been very difficult. But it was possible. Larry saw David as extremely organized, detail-oriented, and methodical. He believed David was smart enough to have planned out the murder and a nearly unbeatable alibi. It also would explain why no other fingerprints were found at the scene. Finally, Larry confronted David, accusing him of the murder. David told Larry he couldn't believe he would think such a thing. He asked David to take a lie detector test. David agreed. David passed with flying colors. He had nothing to hide. With no other leads, Larry didn't know what to do next.
1: Okay, so even like the smartest person could forget their umbrella. Like, I think (laughs) that was a reach in general. But I'd still be invested as much as David is in this case if one of my loved ones died.
0: Absolutely, especially when the investigators don't seem to know what they're doing. We aren't going to sit around and hope you figure it out.
1: Exactly. If we relied on the police to do their job, so much would never get done, and most of our cases prove that.
0: (laughs) Shan will tell us where this case led next after a short break.
1: Some of Karen's friends hired a psychic to come to a seance for them at Naverne's house. They sat in a circle and held hands. The psychic told them to close their eyes and think about Karen. The psychic spoke of feeling Karen's presence in the room. Suddenly, Naverne felt a tingle on her neck, and David saw a vision of Karen petting a cat that she once owned. The psychic asked Karen to tell them anything she could about her murder. David said he saw a vision of an old rusty wrench turning a bolt on an engine. He then invited a different psychic to the house to do a reading as well. He asked Larry Tosi to be there, and reluctantly, he agreed. She did a walkthrough and stood where Karen's body was found. The psychic told them the person they were looking for had been stalking Karen for some time. That night when she was alone, he stood outside and watched her through the windows, following her from room to room. There may have been two men or possibly one man living two very different lives, with two very distinct parts to their personality.
0: You all know I'm into the woo-woo stuff, but I'm skeptical of anyone calling themselves a psychic, especially if they charge money for their services. I do believe genuine psychics exist, but be wary of scammers. Okay, carry on, Jam.
1: Well, in December, Larry officiated George and now seven-month pregnant Glinda's wedding. Over the last several months, he and George had talked about the case often. Sometimes George remembered new details he hadn't thought of at that time, and Larry would make notes. Right after Christmas, one of the detectives was at a retirement party for a chief of police when a woman who lived three blocks away from David and Karen mentioned that she had also heard the scream. So many people heard the scream that night, so it didn't surprise them, but it got Larry thinking. The scream had to have been extremely loud for someone three blocks away to have heard it. How did George, who was outside in his garage with the door open directly across the street, not hear exactly where it was coming from, and why didn't he call the police that night? He hadn't really thought about it before, but George was a frequent caller. He called police for anything and everything that happened in his neighborhood, even if it's just a person he didn't recognize walking down the street. So they needed to talk to George again.
0: George is one of those neighbors who calls police because a stranger is walking peacefully through the neighborhood during the day. But he didn't call when a woman screamed right across the street.
1: Yeah, that isn't adding up. Right. So you just decided not to be the Karen of the neighborhood that (laughs) night? Weird.
0: The lead detective just officiated the guy's wedding, though. That's kind of a conflict of interest.
1: Yeah, Larry didn't think he should interview George this time since they were close friends, so he asked Frank Hansen to do it. George didn't show up to the interview. A few days later, Frank ran into George at a house fire call. George was pretty easy to spot. He was a young guy, had thick red hair, and an impressive red mustache and freckles. George looked panicked as Frank approached him. He apologized for missing the interview and promised to come by next week. This time, George showed up. He went through his story again, but this time claimed he walked up and down the street looking between cars and bushes. They pushed him on what he heard, maybe glass breaking or the door slamming like the other neighbor had heard. He said no, he hadn't heard or seen anything. He asked George to take a polygraph test, and George reluctantly agreed. Every question related to Karen and all of his denials of involvement showed on the test as deceit. The polygraph examiner confronted George, telling him, You aren't telling me the truth. You know it. I know it. God knows it. George began to cry. The examiner called the detectives into the room. George told them that he had seen a man on the lawn under a big oak tree in front of David's house walking towards the back of the property. He said the man stopped and they both stared at each other. He said he got scared and ran back into his house. He was able to describe the man in great detail. A white, middle-aged, big about 6'4", with a red beard and collar-length hair and weightlifter arms. He wore a loose-fitting green shirt with no collar, open in the front with no buttons, short sleeves. It looked like a surgical scrub shirt. He didn't notice the man's shoes. He claimed he didn't tell Glenda about the man because he didn't want to scare her. And he didn't tell the police because the man had seen where he lived. I'm sorry, what? That is a very strange
0: change to his story. Why would he be afraid to tell the police? Even if this is true, the police are literally his best friends. They would protect him if he was in danger.
1: The first people he should be running to is his friends.
0: Besides, I remember reading in the research that it was dark and rainy that night. How did he get such a detailed description? Were police really buying this?
1: Larry wasn't buying his friend's story, and he decided to stage a reenactment. Larry noticed several neighbors had installed spotlights since the murder, so the street was much brighter than it had been the night of the murder. He asked people to turn them off for a reenactment. Officer Brinkworth was dropped off two blocks from the house. He had red hair and was instructed to wear a green jacket. When given the signal, Larry and Frank stood with George in his driveway and watched as the officer walked across David and Karen's lawn to stand under the tree. When George indicated that the officer was standing about where the man had been on that night of the murder, Larry asked George to describe the man. He could tell he was wearing a jacket, but not the color. He couldn't describe the man's hair color or anything else about him. Larry asked George if he had knew the man standing across the street, and George said no. George tried to explain that the light must have been different on the night of the murder. The street light might have reflected better on the wet pavement or the moon was brighter. Larry didn't buy it. They asked george if he could have been closer to the intruder and george said yes maybe but he insisted he had never left his property that caught larry's attention because in his last statement george claimed he walked up and down the street looking around and in another statement he claimed that he was in david and karen's driveway looking between their cars they asked him to go through it all again more parts of his story changed in his earlier statement he said that he had never seen karen the day of the murder They asked him again now and he said that he had saw her at 7 30 that day through her kitchen window washing dishes they asked how he knew she was washing dishes and he said because he had seen her arms moving they could tell he was lying but they assumed he was hiding something because he was scared for his and his family's safety they called it a night and everyone went home
0: this guy's sketchy as hell he's clearly lying at every turn but they keep leading him to answers that make more sense. This is not procedure, I'm sure, to help a witness remember details that fit the case better. Come on.
1: They're trying to save their friend because he's a quote-unquote good man.
0: (laughs) And he admits to spying on her through the window. Creepy. They didn't actually believe this guy, right?
1: Well, Larry started taking a closer look at George's part in the investigation. He had been lying from the start. He was the one to point the finger at the man doing yard work, some unidentified man on a bike, Peter leaving the note, and even David. But George had never mentioned the red-haired man on the lawn. Larry now looked back when the investigation had just started and the chief of police had declared George's story was bullshit and he was their guy. But the detectives had all ignored him. They thought the chief was just trying to be a part of the unusual murder case to feel relevant again. They joked that the chief had gone off the deep end. They all knew George. He was their friend. There was no way he was a killer.
0: The most experienced officer in the entire department. Hmm, maybe you should stop being assholes.
1: Right. Larry still wasn't ready to admit that George could be the killer, though. He couldn't deny George had been lying to them and was clearly hiding something, but that doesn't necessarily make him a killer. Larry was convinced George must have seen something terrifying that night that scared him bad enough to make him lie. And George doesn't intimidate easily. Larry and Frank wanted George to sit for another polygraph. He didn't show up for one interview. Then the next, he showed up, but claimed he had an Ian and was in a hurry to get home for dinner. They tried to get George to relax by asking him how fatherhood was treating him. He pulled out pictures of his new little girl and told him that he wouldn't trade her for the world. Once they got into the interview, they demanded he tell them what he's hiding. This time he told them he was walking the street trying to find the source of the scream when he came up to David's yard. He saw a man under the tree standing a few feet away. He asked the man what was wrong and the man snapped at him to get lost. He told George he better not say a word to anyone or he would come back and kill him. They hooked George up to a polygraph and asked him to make that statement again. It said he was lying. They told George if they wanted to believe him, they were trying to help him. They asked if there was anything else he was holding back. They said if there was anything left out, it could show up as lying on the test. George thought for a minute and told them maybe it's because he had promised to keep his mouth shut. Oh my God, give me a break. <laughs> right. Frank was getting angry at his ever-changing stories and yelled at George and said, and I quote, First you were in your driveway, then the street, now in David and Karen's yard, next you're going to tell me you were in the house. End quote. To which George insisted, no, he was never in the house. There were too many conflicting stories, he didn't believe George anymore. George looked disgusted while Frank read him his Miranda rights. Then they continued with the polygraph test asking the same questions about Karen's murder, and again George denied involvement, and again George failed. That day, George became an official suspect, but his changing stories weren't enough to prove he did it. Larry still wanted to give George the benefit of the doubt. They sat down together at George's house and put together a composite sketch of the man George had seen. Then Larry showed the sketch to all Karen's family and friends. All of them said they didn't know anyone that looked like that. Larry did, though, because that sketch looked like George. He had described himself. Wow, what an idiot. That
0: is a guilty conscience, ratting himself out right there.
1: (laughs) Right. That's so funny and a sure sign from the universe to give up on this fake story you're feeding everyone.
0: Right. So they arrest him now, right?
1: No. But Larry quietly asked the neighbors about George and if he had said anything about Karen's murder. They all loved George. He was a local hero. He was a kind, young first responder who looked out for everyone. One woman had known George for years and thought he was a very nice young man. She told Larry that not long after the murder, she was returning home after a late night out, a little after midnight, when she heard a voice say hello from her yard. It startled her, but then she saw it was George walking his dog. They began talking about the murder. He told her he had inside information on the case. He claimed to work with the police from time to time, and he had friends in the department keeping him up on the investigation. He told her police discovered that Karen liked to date black men, and before she died, she had brought some plants home and left them in her driveway. He told her some of the plants had been stolen. He said police believed it was a large man. He insisted he had to be big. Why, the woman had asked. He responded to have dragged her body around the way he did. Skeptical, she reminded him that Karen was tiny, and he said, yeah, but she was muscular. He also told this woman about a couple of black women living in the neighborhood that were causing a problem by having a bunch of cars parking all over the streets and crowding them. He told her he was helping the police with her by keeping a close eye on her house. This information shocked Larry. He wasn't aware of anyone sharing information with George about the investigation, and much of that information was incorrect. They weren't necessarily looking for a big man. There had been a carpet burn on her skin, but they hadn't been able to confirm when or how it occurred. They didn't know if her body had been dragged around. He also wondered how George had known Karen had been strong. It was true her fitness was impressive, but you couldn't tell just by looking at her. And Larry had never heard of anything about plants. Larry couldn't prove George was the man lurking outside of the other women's houses at night, but it was all starting to come together.
0: Inserting himself into the investigation, knows too much about the crime scene, and
1: is clearly the prowler peeping Tom in the area. All the signs are there, and I'm glad Larry isn't giving up.
0: Yeah, but they really had to be slapped in the face with it before they were willing to consider their friend a suspect.
1: That's true. They collected prints and hair samples from George and sent them to the FDLE for analysis against what little evidence was collected. They weren't able to definitively connect them to the crime scene. Larry tried to figure out what the motive could have possibly been for his friend to have snapped and actually killed someone. After talking with George's firefighter buddies, they learned that he was a bit of a hothead if he didn't get his way. Larry had seen it himself. If an engine wasn't cooperating, George would get mad and throw his tools. But this isn't the same as rape and murder. It had been a difficult time in George's life. He was fighting a lot with Glinda back then, and the house they lived in is owned by George's parents, and up until a few days before the murder, his sister and his friend Mike lived there too. Rumor had it things were tense. Mike moved out days before Karen was murdered. Then right around the same time, Glinda unexpectedly found out she was pregnant. While George did agree to marry her, he had never intended to get married again after his short-lived first wife. Was the unexpected pregnancy the pressure to marry Glinda and the disagreements with his roommates enough to push him over the edge? That summer, a few weeks after Karen's murder, Glinda moved out for a few months and 22-year-old George started sleeping with a 16-year-old girl named Tanya. He even invited one of his firefighter buddies to the motel for a sex party with her. By fall, George and Glinda were back together and set a wedding date. When talking with Tanya, she told Larry about a gift George had given her while they were together, a white teddy, just like the lingerie David said was missing that Karen had bought for herself for her birthday. Another friend of George's told Larry about a day in 1984 when he and George were standing outside of his garage hanging out when they saw a woman across the street at David's house walking around in a bikini. George had said, would you look at that? They had joked about how attractive she was. He couldn't guarantee it was Karen, but said that she was a slender white woman with dark hair just like Karen. He remembered that she may have been moving boxes into the house. George's friend told Larry he wouldn't be surprised if George had hit on Karen. He claimed if George thought he could get some ass, he would have given it a try.
0: I hate everything about this guy. As for his motive, people have killed for less. His girlfriend just told him she was unexpectedly pregnant, and he was being pressured into marrying her, and Karen had likely rejected his advances at some point. He thought he was hot shit, but his world was closing in on him, and he couldn't handle it.
1: And on top of that, he's clearly a racist, so he probably felt like he was owed a smile in a conversation from a black man's white wife at the time. Like, how could you like him, but not me type of thing?
0: Ugh. Now, people did look outside when they heard the scream. Would it have been possible for him to sneak home without being seen?
1: Well, looking at the case from this new perspective, they realized that there were bushes at the back of Karen's house that would have allowed him to sneak out her window, sneak around the block, circling east, and then to the south to avoid the street light on the corner. His garage was separated from his house, and it would have been very convenient for changing out of bloody clothes. The detective also knew from experience he kept old shirts and shorts in the garage to use as makeshift rags. It wouldn't have been hard for him to dump the clothes in the trash can just outside of the garage after changing. He would still have needed to wash off, though. That's when Larry remembered that Glinda had been scared that night because she thought she saw a silhouette of a man in the backyard. He remembered that George often washed up at the hose in the back after working in the garage. When he asked Linda about it though she changed her story and claimed that she never saw anyone in the yard that night in her original statement she had enthusiastically described the silhouette and insisted that she had been waiting for what felt like hours for george but it was probably more like 30 minutes now she said he came in only after 10 minutes she seemed to be changing her story to cover for him in the summer of 1984 the detectives tracked down george's ex-wife denise They met when she was 19 and he was 18 while she was in Florida for a two-week vacation. When she went home, they started up a long-distance relationship. A few months later, he drove up to visit her and proposed. Their marriage lasted less than a year and she had barely moved out when Glinda moved in. They asked her about George's personality and she told them an earful. She said George had been obsessed with other women. He would see a beautiful woman and say, would you look at that? He would get so excited he would have to tell her about it. She said he repeatedly lied to her during their short relationship, but the biggest rift in the relationship was that he spent all the hours of the night out in that damn garage. The final straw was the night he tried to strangle her. She was complaining about how much time he spent in the garage and he kept yelling at her to shut up. She yelled right back at him and he backed her into a corner. He put his hands around her throat and squeezed. She had never seen him like this before. He looked like a different person. She continued to taunt him. Go ahead and kill me, she said. You'll be behind bars for the rest of your life he let her go and she moved away from him she didn't call the police because they were his friends what were they gonna do she went home to visit her family and when she returned george was acting agitated she demanded to know what had happened while she was gone he confessed to having an affair with glinda so she packed her things and moved out they learned from denise and george's other friends that he didn't like black people he made racist comments about black firefighters on his team Denise told them that he would make a special note of any people of color in the neighborhood and report them to the police. Larry had never personally heard George express racist ideas, but it brought him back to his original theory about the motive being triggered by an interracial relationship. Larry and Frank were ashamed it had taken this long to see George as a suspect. They had been too close to him. It blinded them to George as a suspect. Now thinking back, Larry remembered a company luau that his wife and Glenda had attended when they worked together. He realized the bloody shirt found on Karen's bed looked just like the one that Glinda had worn to that party. It was possible she had given it to George to use as a rag in the garage. It all made sense now, but he had no proof.
0: Jesus, they are such good friends, but they don't seem to actually know anything about him or his ideology. Or maybe they just overlooked his obvious racism because they're white and it didn't matter to them. White people, I'm talking to you. We need to do better.
1: (laughs) It's not hurting them in any way, so why make a fuss about it? They're benefiting from his racism at the end of the day.
0: Mm. If they don't have any proof, and the crime scene analyst didn't collect the evidence, how
1: are they going to prove it was George? David and Larry were both convinced the picture of the bloody footprint in the bathroom was the key to proving this case. Larry contacted FDLE and asked them to enlarge it and compare it to the prints taken from the suspects, They refused, saying it would never work. He sent it to the Tampa Crime Lab and asked them to try, but they also refused, saying it was just a smudge and a waste of their time. He refused to give up. He sent the photo and prints collected from George and sent it all to the FBI Crime Lab in Washington, D.C. He pulled every string he could to get them to run it for him. The FBI analyst called and confirmed the prints belonged to George Lewis. He had found 31 points of comparison, and they had their proof. Frank and Larry waited until George was at work at the fire station next door. They waited in the conference room and asked one of the other officers to go get George. He greeted them when he walked in, but when they asked if he could talk about the case, he told them he was busy. Gently, they told him it couldn't wait. They set up a tape recorder and read him his rights and asked him to sign a paper waiving his rights to an attorney. He told his story again, this time adding in that he had heard a scream and glass breaking, then saw the man on the lawn who threatened him to get lost. They started pushing about if he had ever been in the house. He said only once when the gardener had a seizure and the paramedics were called and he went in to help. He insisted he had never on that night of the murder or after. Larry jumped in and confronted him about the footprint. George told him that's impossible. They must have made a mistake. He wasn't even barefoot that night. After arguing about it for a while longer, George asked for a lawyer and they told him that they were arresting him. He started crying and said that he saw the guy leave and he went around to the back of the house and just went in real quick through the bedroom window and saw her lying there with her throat cut open. He panicked and ran home. They couldn't ask any more questions because George had asked for a lawyer, but he kept talking anyway. He begged them to believe him. He insisted he didn't kill her. He just saw her and ran off scared to death since the guy had seen him and knew where he lived. They photographed George and sent him to the county jail.
0: He just climbed through the window and walked through the bloody crime scene real quick, then went home and spent years pretending he didn't know anything. That's what every trained paramedic would do, right?
1: Oh, you know it. (laughs) He keeps throwing himself under the bus
0: with his bad lies. He was heavily counting on their friendship to protect him. They did their best to ignore George as a suspect, but at least they came around to doing their job at the end.
1: George sat in jail for months until his family pulled together enough money to get him out on bond, which cost them $150,000. The trial was a circus. The case bounced around from judge to judge, and it reminded me of the Heard versus Depp trial with the objection after objection. George himself took the stand in his own defense, where he told yet another new story. Surprise, surprise. Before the trial, police had never told George where the bloody footprint was located in the house that detail came out in court so now george tells the court he had actually been barefoot that night he tells his whole story again but this time says that he saw the body ran into the bathroom to throw up then climbed back out the window give me a break after 13 hours of deliberation over two days the jury found george guilty of first degree murder and sexual assault the jury recommended life in prison but in the end the sentencing is up to the judge The defense filed an appeal immediately, claiming the judge made numerous mistakes and the verdict should be overturned. It actually worked and the verdict was overturned. But then the prosecution appealed that decision and the verdict was reinstated. George eventually was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole. Finally!
0: This entire case is insane. Even the verdict got yanked around.
1: Yeah, he really had the entire justice system in a chokehold. But at least he lost in the end.
0: (laughs) Where do things stand today?
1: Well, the Innocence Project took on the case for some reason and wanted to run the DNA from the semen sample. In June of 2009, the results came back and it couldn't be confirmed one way or the other. The director of the Innocence Project's Florida branch visited George in prison and got the vibe that he wasn't a murderer.
0: Because we go off vibes now. (laughs) Right.
1: In June of 2010, the Florida Parole Board ruled George would be eligible for parole in 2051 when he's 89 years old. George didn't get that far, though. He died in prison in 2015. Glenda and his two daughters couldn't make sense of it and never believed he could do something like this. David could never bring himself to live in that house again and sold it a few years after the murder. Karen's family and friends were forever changed by what was done to her.
0: Karen was minding her own business, living her best life. No matter how vigilant Karen was, she never could have prepared herself for the monster watching her from the shadows. There's no excuse for what he did. Karen deserved to live her life in peace. George disguised himself as a hero. His disguise allowed him to watch his neighbors through their windows and take the life of an innocent woman asleep in her bed. Never assume anyone is incapable of being a monster in disguise.
1: Karen's life might have been saved if anyone who had heard that scream called 911, but sometimes it's hard to bring yourself to report something suspicious. The truth is, most crimes need the community's help to solve. For that, there's Crime Stoppers. Crime Stoppers is entirely anonymous, and the process of calling Crime Stoppers is simple. If you have knowledge of a crime, call 1-877-903-STOP, which puts you in contact with the Crime Stoppers command center. An operator will answer the phone and take down the information you wish to provide. They'll never ask for your name, number, address, or any other identifying information. You can also place a tip on the website from the tip submit button on the main page, or you can download the P3 tips app.
0: To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Elena. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Podcast for our question of the week. You can also find us on TikTok.
1: Steph, what's our Conjure Tip of the Week?
0: Today I want to share with you a tip for when you're moving into a new house. We have talked in the past about cleansing your space. Once you do that, take some black salt and sprinkle it in every doorway and windowsill. This simple process will help protect your space from those who mean you harm. It's not strong enough to keep out everything, of course, so I also recommend a good security system and a big dog but every little bit helps when it comes to protecting your space and yourself.
1: Until Until next time, time, stay stay vigilant, vigilant conjurers. conjurers!